Good morning, Communications Network, and I'm so excited to see so many of you and to kick off the conference today with a really terrific session with Renee DeResta. My name is Vidya Krishnamurthy. I am Director of Communications at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation in Northern California. And wherever you're joining us from, um, I hope you are excited to be a part of ComNetB. Um, I have Sean Givens, whom you all know and love, um, behind the scenes helping me today with taking your questions for Renee. Renee is one of the premier researchers studying the spread of false and malign narratives in social media. Um, and it's something deeply important to all of us in comments. So Renee, thank you so much for being with us. Um, you have shared some of your research with folks at the Senate at, in Congress for policymakers and decision makers and helping us really understand what's happening with false narratives and how they're affecting so many of the issues that we care about. So we're really happy to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, um, you know, I just want to start first by, um, you know, I've been reading your work in The Atlantic. Um, I've seen the research you did. You did the definitive reports on Russian influence operations um, in Congress. And what is so striking to me is that I know from talking with you that you actually got into doing this work really in as, as a mom who sort of discovered the world of disinformation. I thought, could you tell us a little bit more just about that story and how you sort of started this journey down into the rabbit hole of disinformation? Yeah, sure. So it was, um, I had my, my, I have three kids now as of like six weeks ago, but my first was in December, 2013. And uh, I live in San Francisco and you have to do this thing where you put your kid on a preschool waiting list. Um, to you know, there's just more kids than spots. Anyway, I am, um, I knew that San Francisco had a bit of an anti-vaccine problem that California did in general. And so I went and I looked at the uh, vaccination rates for California public schools. And I was really sort of surprised and horrified by them, actually. And I, I just wrote up a blog post. You know, I have a data science background. I made a couple of visualizations and kind of put it out into the world. Um, and, I, and I called my congressman, <laughs> which I'd never done before. Uh, but I was like, can't we do something about this? You know, this really seems to be putting our kids at risk. Like, there's got to be something that we can do. And... About, uh, he said no. He said the anti-vaccine movement's very well organized and there's no appetite to take this on. And then about a month and a half later, the Disneyland measles outbreak started. And I called back again and he said, you know, yes, we're actually going to do something this time. And uh, if you'd like to be involved as a parent voice, uh, we'd love to, you know, to have you. So I wound up... Um, you know, kind of getting connected to two or three other women. And we made a Facebook page because we thought this is what you do when you become an activist. And we made a Facebook page. We called it Vaccinate California. And, um, and you know, then we had to get an audience for our Facebook page. So we started running ads because, again, that's what you do, right? And we made a Twitter account. And then we realized that the opposition was just far better organized. They had been using kind of tactics for coordinated activism for quite some time. Which, again, you know, okay, so we have to build a movement now and make the other side equally active. But what we discovered as we were doing this was there were really interesting ways in which um, the algorithms were inadvertently kind of promoting the most sensational, uh, factually inaccurate stories. So you could go and you could ad target, but you would find ad targeting um, options for reaching anti-vaxxers, but you couldn't find anything for reaching anybody pro-vaccine. Uh, when I started engaging with vaccine-related content, my recommendation engine on Facebook totally changed. The groups that began to suggest to me, even though I was running a pro-vaccine page all of a sudden, were all anti-vaccine. 
So I thought, well, this is really weird. I feel like I'm, you know, being pushed. You know, I've indicated an interest in vaccines and it's shoving me very hard in the opposite direction. So I started uh, writing and studying the dynamics um, by which this was happening. And I ran a couple of like network analyses on Twitter. We really did a lot of very kind of quantitative analysis on how this movement had grown online. And we wound up getting a law passed, you know, the, uh, the, the bill that we were working on to eliminate the vaccine opt-outs and raise vaccination rates. And that happened as well, which was great. So we felt that we'd really done some, some public service there. But what happened next really surprised me. I got this inbound uh, comment from somebody who worked for the Obama administration saying the type of analysis that you're doing is the type of analysis that we're beginning to do on ISIS, uh, the terrorist organization. And that's because the same tactics that you're describing seeing used in this sort of networked activism, this propaganda, and then the way that these uh, curation and trending and recommendation engines are promoting it is what we believe we're seeing over here as well. Would you be interested in coming down to State Department for a month working with a team of other data scientists and marketers, actually, there were two or three communications professionals on the team to talk about what we do when the internet becomes a vast tool for propaganda. And I thought, you know, okay, well, I know absolutely, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a counter extremism expert, um, but I think that, that this is, you know, indicative of this feeling that I had begun to have that this was like the future of campaigning, that everything from now on was going to be who had the largest number of fake accounts screaming on Twitter to dominate a hashtag whose sensational content was going to trend on Facebook. So my foray into it was actually looking not at the disinformation side, but just as the mechanics of the ecosystem, like how it worked. Mm -hmm. And then while we were doing the, the ISIS work, while we were beginning to understand how terrorist organizations were using this to kind of grow their following, uh, people in DOD already knew that Russia was operating on the same uh, in the same way. But while ISIS was doing it very overtly, while many of the activists were doing it very overtly, Russia was using the same tactics, but it was doing it subversively, covertly, as if they were someone else, as if they were real Americans, in fact. And so we began to look at how that dynamic was taking shape. And again, uh, you know, this was just sort of an unexpected, it wasn't really where I saw my career going. Um, but I wound up uh, doing a lot of the early work on that too, trying to find that activity because this was sort of one layer deeper. It wasn't just how they were able to use this infrastructure to grow movement or to divide society, it was also that there was this element of, and you had to find them. And so there was some kind of different research tools that we developed to do that. Well, let me pause you there because, you know, that is such an interesting um, journey that, and, and, and set of connections, because you're spanning different issues from public health and vaccines to counterterrorism to to how state to state relationships, right? How Russia has tried to destabilize um, democracies. Um, let me let me pause because I think those are connections that people don't always understand that the way that narratives flow and these tactics are being widely deployed. Maybe we can pause and just kind of take stock of where we are in the current moment. And, yep. um, uh, you know, I'd invite you to just sort of describe for us a little bit of the lay of the land, because I'm not sure that everyone who's listening to our conversation really um, kind of can tell the difference between when we use words like propaganda versus disinformation or fake news. What are the differences? What are we talking about? And who, yeah, who sure. are the different actors behind these different types of campaigns? So I have um, a couple slides. So the um, excellent folks running the, there we go. Okay, great. Uh, so I'm going to look at mine down here. So I think uh, Claire Wordle from Harvard was the one uh, from First Draft who came up with the term information disorder. And I really like it because it indicates that there's a, a couple different things that are going on. 
So there's misinformation, which is information that's just inadvertently wrong. So that's the kind of thing where, um, you know, maybe your your mom sends it to you. I saw this thing on the internet and I thought you should know about it. Even though it's not true, uh, the impetus behind sharing it is very altruistic. They did, you know, somebody just wants to help inform their community and they believe the content is true. They believe that what they're showing you is true. So when we talk about misinformation, um, we are talking about something that is wrong, that is shared, uh, but it's done inadvertently. Whereas disinformation is when you have an element of intent that comes into play. So there's an intent to influence and an intent to deceive. And the deception part is very important. And so this is where you look at, it's not necessarily a falsifiable claim. It's not always untrue, uh, but it's there's something about either the messenger or the message or the way in which the message is spread uh, that's inauthentic, that, that has an element of deception to it. Propaganda, I include in here because you know disinformation is sort of a, it's a kind of a type of propaganda. Um, propaganda is information with an agenda. And it's a thing that I think the definition has always been um, somewhat kind of nebulous, but it's a very important thing to understand when we're kind of on the internet all the time and people are competing for our attention. And so there's a barrage of information out there at all times. And so I think that actually understanding and you know what modern day propaganda looks like is a very important research angle in uh, studying information disorder. And then the last, which I included here is fake news which is a term that we actually try not to use now because it's become so politicized, but it is the thing that, that many people kind of heard first. And when the term came about, fake news was actually kind of demonstrably falsifiable news. It was things that, you know, the Pope endorses Donald Trump, Megyn Kelly fired from Fox News. There were these news stories that were, quote, news stories that were going viral and trending on Facebook and Twitter and other places that were demonstrably untrue, but because they were so sensational, so you know outrageous, uh, people would go and click on them and then they would be sort of further shared along. So when we get to the question of who's doing it, let me advance my slide here. All right, looks like that worked. Um, because the internet is a system, right? It's a communication system and it's designed to be, um, it, it's democratized. So one of the great promises of the internet was that anybody could say what they wanted to. You could start a blog uh, free of any editorial gatekeepers. You could put your message out there to the world. And this was seen as a thing that would really kind of expand the discourse. It would expand, you know, uh, previously underrepresented voices would be heard. And this was going to be a wonderful thing. Um, the problem was, as people began to realize that this tool existed, it it's sort of, you know, the, the sort of manipulative bad people kind of came in to use it also. So that, that um, dual nature, right? Something that's a tool in one person's hands uh, can be a weapon in another person's hands. And so when we get it, who's running these campaigns, they're all using the same infrastructure. They're all using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the entire kind of plethora of social networks. And so we see state actors we see uh, domestic partisans. So this is particularly as election 2020 is underway, you know, domestic groups can do the same thing that Russia can do. Uh, we see extremists. So I mentioned ISIS a little bit earlier. Spammers. Spammers are actually remarkably innovative because they have a financial motivation. And so some of the newest and most emergent tactics that we see a lot of the time are not from state actors. They're actually from spammers. And we can talk a little bit about that uh, if you're interested. There were some really kind of remarkable stuff that was done around the George Floyd protests by people who just wanted to, you know, earn some ad revenue. Uh, and then there's the conspiracy theorists. And they're in there because there's a certain remarkable dynamic that they have that sort of sets them apart from other groups. And that's their absolute passion. 
this really asymmetric passion where they're absolutely determined to be communicating at all times about the thing that they believe. And there is no kind of counter content to, um, you know, to, to kind of bump up against that to kind of, you know, there's no counter speech in large part, because with some of these conspiracies, we can use flat earth as an example. Nobody gets on Twitter to tweet about how the earth is round. So if you start to inquire about, you know, the shape of the earth, you'll get the, um, the kind of info box that'll let you know, but depending on what platform you're on and how well curated their, you know, their, their search function is, uh, you will in fact get flat earth answers to that question. So that's the kind of dynamic with regard to all of the different entities that can use the same information ecosystem. And, and what's the, what's the purpose here? I mean, you describe some people who are motivated by by money. They're trying to they're trying to drive up ad revenue. We saw that in 2016 as well. Um, yes. But others are trying to push an agenda. So, wh- what are they trying to do with these these different types of campaigns? Yeah, that's a great question. So, state actors in particular are not always attacking some other country, right? Some other country's citizens. Uh, oftentimes, the stuff that we see from state actors. Uh, is actually operated, you know, is operating on its own population, particularly in authoritarian countries. Uh, or there's the ruling party in a particular country that chooses to use these platforms uh, to try to maintain its hold on power. A lot of what you see from state actors and from domestic ideologues in particular, and from extremists to an extent, is that this is really about power. Um, if you control the channels of communication, if you control what people see, if you control the way in which they engage with information, and in a curated ecosystem where the algorithm is deciding what appears in your feed or the trending feature is deciding, you know, is shaping and nudging you in a particular direction with what you're going to click on, then by controlling that information environment, you have, in a sense, controlled what, the, what your targeted communities are seeing. And that's a that's a remarkable power, particularly if you know you are nudging them towards an election or nudging them towards taking a course of action, or sometimes it's not even about nudging them. I think this is on my next slide. It's not even about nudging them to take an action. It's actually about distracting them. And so there's a uh, let me advance to that one actually. There's sort of a um, series of goals that they have here, and we roughly bucket them into distract. So. Uh, distract, persuade, entrench, and divide. And I'll talk a little bit about distract because that's one that I think uh, is something that people don't really uh, have the same awareness of. Not all of the activity is designed to persuade you to change your vote or to like someone or to dislike something else. A lot of times with distract, there's just a recognition that as we get our information from the internet, if there's an unfavorable story about you and you push out something else, you kind of flood the zone you can effectively change the topic of conversation and distract someone away uh, from that from that topic. So if you've ever gone on Twitter and had the feeling that there's like a two second news cycle, that there's this constantly roiling, you know, battle of, of uh, you know, you're just being barraged by narratives and counter narratives or sort of like a, oh, well, look over here dynamic. Um, in the U.S., that's, uh, you know, that's still kind of different groups and stories and major media interacting on the platforms as well. But oftentimes in authoritarian countries, what you'll see is uh, that dynamic of distract is just used to kind of maintain their regime's relationship uh, to the people. To, you know, one, one example would be, or, or to maintain the regime's um, projection, its, its reputation uh, in, the, in the broader kind of community of, of countries. So one example of that might be uh, when Jamal Khashoggi was murdered, 
a bunch of accounts linked to Saudi Arabia immediately appeared on Twitter and they began flooding the zone, just do trying to dominate all the hashtags with alternative explanations for what had happened. And in the days prior to when the tape was found and the full understanding of, of what had happened to Mr. Khashoggi, the murder uh, was out there in the public through the investigative journalism process. There was instead this barrage of stories about, oh, he left, oh, he, you know, he went here, something else happened. So if you flood the zone with that, you make people, they internalize a narrative. They believe that, you know, they, they come to uh, accept that one particular thing happened. And then when the truth comes out after the fact, now the truth is kind of competing with the pre-existing narrative right. that's been placed in their head. And there's a sense that it's just too hard to go through all 20 of these narratives to figure out what's really happened. So that's a really interesting dynamic that uh, social platforms inadvertently kind of made possible. I mean, one of the most interesting and I think disturbing aspects of this is the intent and the impact is really to uh, degrade the whole notion of facts and truth and there being kind of a right answer. Um, it's to muddy all of the narratives so nothing can really emerge and be legitimate. Um, and I think what you just described in the in the Saudi, you know, murder example is 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 exactly that because those accounts were, I mean, were you able to attribute them to the government? So or did you know who, who was behind that? No, that's a great question. Um, attribution is really, really hard. So the way that this works, so I'm at Stanford Internet Observatory. And so we are a research institution within Stanford. Um, we work with the platforms where we can. We work with civil society. We work with government. We work with journalists. We believe that a kind of interdisciplinary, multi-stakeholder process is the best mechanism for understanding the information environment because different people see things at different times. Civil society groups, particularly those that serve targeted communities, will oftentimes have a sense that something is just not quite right, that some narratives or some content is making its way, some fake accounts into their community, uh, and that will be sort of like the first red flag of, of what's going on. But what winds up happening um, a lot of the time is the attribution piece requires some sort of digital forensics in order to be uh, confident. So we always have kind of a confidence level of what do we think has happened and who do we think is behind it. So for something like Russia, while outside researchers can raise a flag and can say, according to what's called tactics, techniques, and procedures, or according to these methodologies, these behaviors, this type of content, these sites, these narratives, um, we believe this is likely to be affiliated in some way with a Russian operation. And then that in turn will go to the platform companies who have visibility into where are these devices logging in from? What are the connections of the administrators of the pages behind the scenes? Who's clicking on what? Who opened what on what laptop? So device identification and things like that. Knowing whether they're using a VPN and knowing whether they're not using a VPN. So you have a lot of this dynamic that's kind of taking shape um, where there's that, that process of, of attribution really kind of coming from the um, joint assessment of a whole bunch of different actor types. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the platforms and, <clears throat> excuse me, the work that they have been doing in some cases uh, to identify <clears throat> and take down bad actors. But... Um, <clears throat> like a lot of people, I recently watched The Social Dilemma. <clears throat> Sorry. 
you know, the docudrama. It's getting a lot of eyeballs. You're quoted in it. It's getting a good amount of criticism as well because of its um, over-reliance on mostly white, mostly male insiders who helped build um, social platforms. Um, but it's a really terrifying portrayal of how platforms are kind of manipulative and addictive by design. That is to say, spreading these narratives is <clears throat> as much a is more of a feature than a bug because of the way the recommendation engines, which you've just described so well, how they operate. What do you think tech companies should be doing besides kind of identifying and trying to take things down? Or is, or is that enough? What, do you, what, what could they be doing to, to corral these false and malign narratives? Yeah, well, a lot of times takedowns are not actually the, the best kind of course of action. Um, I have one last slide that maybe speaks to this a little bit, which is the different areas in which this takes shape. So um, it's really, it's not just elections, it's not just politics, it's, you know, COVID-19 has become a huge, uh, huge challenge uh, for, for all of us in the information environment in particular has been it's, re it's really revealed some, some very significant kind of lapses in how institutions communicate in this new environment, uh, how hoaxes and health misinformation goes viral. For me, it actually feels kind of like a throwback to 2015 to saying like, hey, maybe the anti-vaxxers are a problem, you know. <laughs> um, but I think that the challenge for the platforms is um, by the, the, the dynamic of virality, right? So by the time the story has gone viral, uh, it, it's over, right? So if something false goes viral, I, we, I used to say it as like, if you make it trend, you make it true, right? And, and what I meant by that was, um, if you made something trend, it would stick, in, again, it would be in somebody's head as this is the, this is a thing that I should pay attention to. This is a thing that is accurate. This is this, the, the real way of the world. Um, and that interesting challenge for the platforms is what do you do about managing information on an environment that was designed to facilitate freedom of expression, right? As, as we talked about that removal of the gatekeepers, removal of the barriers. Um, but the problem is in some ways, the gatekeepers, the, edit, you know, the editors, like shocking statement here, actually had some value, right? That, that curation process um, when entirely run by an AI is not surfacing the kinds of things we want. It is remarkably effective at finding correlations between you know, people who hold one belief and people who hold another and pushing those people together. With the example of the anti-vaxxers, again, the anti-vaxxers who believe that not the health misinformation side, but the vaccination is vast government overreach and a violation of your civil liberties, the people who were members of those communities were being referred out to militia groups, to Pizzagate groups, and eventually to QAnon groups. And so you see this intersection of people who share one angle of their thinking, and the platform recognizes that and pushes these people together um, without really understanding what it is that it's nudging. It just says this, this you know, there's a statistical likelihood between community A and community B, ergo, uh, they might enjoy each other's content, so let's put them in the same digital room, so to speak. And so the challenge for the platforms is, with this huge, vast swath of different topics that this happens for, how do you design a content moderation regime that deals with some of the content? How do you decide what behaviors are appropriate? Um, when we talk about networked activism, for example, the stuff that I was describing with regard to, you know, even what, what me and my team were doing in Vaccinate California, build a page, anyone can do it, run ads, anyone can do it. And so there were no guardrails on the system. So anybody could use the tools uh, entirely absent any sort of oversight. So the question becomes, if you don't want the platforms deciding what comes up or what stays down, 
then they have to be more adept at curating and thinking about who they're nudging together, what kind of content they're inadvertently amplifying, and then what the downstream harms of that content are. Because for a very long time, the only notion of a harm was, is this an immediate incitement to violence? And the question, is this an immediate incitement to violence? As we've seen with COVID-19, that's not the only type of harm. Pushing out content constantly saying, don't wear masks, take, you know, colloidal silver, um, this is just a really bad flu, you know, these sorts of narratives, uh, or the ones that say, like, coronavirus doesn't exist, it's a vast, you know, vast hoax to distract you from something else. Uh, that has really deleterious impact on public health and on, on communities. And so the question then becomes, all right, well, that's not an immediate incitement to violence. So how should that kind of speech and expression be treated? And that's sort of where we are. You know, it's kind of where we are today. How do we decide in this world of very fast-paced viral commentary, uh, how should the platforms engage and potentially, in my opinion, Uh, one of the best things that they have at their disposal is actually to reduce that virality, to throttle it, to introduce friction. Uh, That at least would kind of give the fact checkers time to come in and help people understand this information in context, as opposed to just letting it get 2 million views and then trying to take it down. What do you think about, I mean, what is your advice to the folks in our community? We are storytellers, we are truth tellers, you know, in most cases, we're the people running the social media channels and pages of our organizations. And we work with often experts in public health in um, all of these different issue areas who, you know, we're trying to privilege, we're trying to promote their messages um, in order to change opinion and improve behavior and outcomes for people. Yeah, well, What's I mean- What's your advice for how we should be engaging? Um, sure, well, I think- information I mean, or, or how to anticipate or monitor it. First, I think it's important that people realize that, uh, you know, even if you're in business, not in, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of like the, <laughs> the appropriate word for that. Um, even if you're not in politics, even if you're not in something that's, you know, that you would think would be heated and confrontational, um, these narratives actually do kind of find various industries in unexpected ways. I mean, Wayfair, the furniture company, found itself getting dragged into the QAnon conspiracy theory by way of, you know, some mispriced filing cabinet. And, and that that misplaced filing cabinet got turned into a whole story on the internet, a vast trending story uh, that, that they were somehow participating in the trafficking of children. So this is a furniture company, to be clear. And so that meant that that furniture company had to, had to figure out what the hell was going on, why all of these people were mentioning them, how they were going to respond to it, what they could possibly put out to diffuse the narrative, because this was, again, massively viral by this point, um, they have to decide, do you even engage with it, right? At what point do you need to engage? Uh, So I think that there's a real, you know, the unfortunate reality is that these sorts of narratives can pop up in, in very unexpected ways. Corporations that have a strong social good component, you know, that, that do a lot of either social justice work or um, choose to um, amplify marginalized voices in some way, then, you know, they also will often attract, you know, the, uh, kind of the online culture wars come for them and and, uh, and and they use these these tactics also. So I think it is really important if you're a corporation, particularly a corporate comms person, because oftentimes it's the comms person who gets asked to deal with this, um, is to think about, you know, how do you understand what the narratives are that might impact your brand or your, uh, you know, your industry and have a kind of a, a prearranged game plan for what happens 
if and when this happens to me or to another person in my industry. Unexpectedly last night, you know, Bumblebee Tuna got dragged into a conversation about protesters and Antifa because of something the president said that people were throwing cans of tuna. So, and named Bumblebee specifically, which meant that all of a sudden, you know, Bumblebee found itself, I imagine, in this position where people were editing their Wikipedia page. <laughs> and it just, you know, becomes a whole internet uh, internet thing. So I think, yeah, I mean, for, I would just say, you know, for, for our community, kind of the comms for good community, yeah. most of the time, those issues and divisive topics, that's, that's kind of where we live. We're live. We live in the area of public health. We live in the area of how do we lift up the voices least heard? Um, these that aren't always considered in. Um, so um, it seems to me, I think what I'm hearing from you is that there is really important work to do in kind of monitoring so that we can spot disinformation because it's not just the biggest issues of the day. It's every issue where it could come up. Um, but I also wonder about, um, you wrote um, earlier this year about on COVID-19, how kind of false narratives were moving way more quickly than um, some public health experts, but you had some advice for how public health experts could engage and do things differently. Yeah, that was a, um, this is the challenge for COVID-19 and, and for I think a lot of comms folks, the internet is going to move along at internet speed, right? So the virality engine is going to keep churning, which means that if you're not out there with a message, um, people are going to fill the void with content about the topic that you should be engaging on. So for the CDC and World Health Organization, for example, you know, they're more accustomed to, they do a briefing, they do a press call, um, they put out a tweet maybe once or twice a day that has some sort of infographic uh, in there. Um, they wait until they are absolutely sure of something uh, before they communicate it to the public. And previously, this was, of course, a very good thing. You, know, you, you want your scientists to be sure of what they're saying before, before they put it out. But the problem is the way that we communicate today is such that that conversation is, is already going, whether or not you're part of it or not. So whether the authoritative voices are electing to participate, um, the Internet voices are, are, are very much out there. And so in some ways, um, in the you know, mask guidance, for example, there were a lot of people on social media saying, hey, we should be using masks. And here's my assessment for why based on the research. And they weren't institutional authoritative voices, but many of them were either epidemiologists or scientists of some sort who had kind of you know, done the research and were communicating this to the public. The CDC remained largely absent from that community, from that conversation. And so when it did finally change guidance, it looked like it was like leading from behind or reacting to what people on the internet were saying. So there's opportunities instead to participate in the conversation by saying, look, here's what we know right now. Here's the guidance that we're giving based on the following things that we understand. And there's a likelihood that this guidance will change as more information becomes available to us. So I think that rather than the sort of older modality of waiting until you're absolutely sure and presenting one authoritative statement, um, now I think people are more accustomed to being, you know, hearing the information uh, come out more in real time. They, they want a response to their query out there. And so that's a, that's a real problem. The platform companies have to decide what to amplify, what to fill those search results with. Uh, in the absence of uh, of authenticated, verified, um, you know, reputable information from an authority figure, so seeing those institutional entities recognize that this is how communication is happening now, that this is how information moves, 
there's an opportunity for them to really adapt a little bit more, get their experts, their truth tellers kind of more comfortable uh, speaking the language that people on social media are used to, to hearing and just saying like, hey, this, you know, this is what we know today. It might change, but this is where we are today. And I think we as a society also have to get a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty and with the, the recognition that, you know, just because you've refreshed your Twitter feed doesn't mean that the right answer is going to, you know, be ready to, to pop up to the top of the feed there. Right. That's super helpful. And it sounds like we need to get a little bit more comfortable with experts just really taking to social media, thinking out loud and participating in a conversation. Um, I do want to open up the conversation to other people who um, are, you know, you can put your question in chat. So I invite you to um, tell us your name, your organization, where you're from, and if you have a question for Renee, and we'll try to get some of your questions answered. Um, I, I want to dig in a little bit more. Um, you mentioned, you know, just political divides, societal divides is one um, area of um, attraction, let's say, for kind of um, bad actors who want to spread misinformation. And I just wanted to hear a little bit more from you on how we should really be thinking about the intersection of race and gender in the spread and prevalence of disinformation. Yeah, well, race is particularly important. Um, gender, I think, I have some interesting thoughts on that. <laughs> um, but race, I feel like, is a little more well understood. So on the Russia operation, just using that as an example, um, there are very real underlying racial grievances in this country that there have been for a very long time. And entities that want to divide society, that want to exacerbate uh, American unrest, have the opportunity to do so by using real underlying issues. There's no reason to fabricate an issue when you have a very real volatile um, moment happening in this country today or you know, even four years ago. So what we would see is uh, four years ago, actually, um, a lot of it was about the, the statues. That was kind of where Russia really got an early foothold. The early activity that you saw from the Internet Research Agency to exacerbate racial tensions really focused on um, the statues and the kind of the, this is where the Confederate statues were being torn down. And so they were pushing narratives into their southern and uh, they had a group called South United um, and a Texas secessionist group. And they were pushing content uh to those communities talking about how their heritage was being destroyed and erased. And then meanwhile, they were going to their fake groups that they had made for, you know, pretending to be uh, black activists saying, you know, look, this country hates you. And here is evidence, you know, they can't even agree to take down these statues that uh, are kind of monuments to your enslavement. And so that is a, you know, there's again, a real national moment that's happening there. There's real video footage of these, you know, these, these, um, statues coming down. And so they're using that tension to create additional tension to kind of exacerbate, again, a real issue, real underlying issue that's been happening. Um, and the challenge there is, you know, again, these are real issues. So the fix for them isn't just kick Russia off social media platforms. The, the fix is requires us to do kind of the deep work as a nation that we need to do to come together. The problem is, though, if you open your social media feed and all you see are these posts reinforcing, 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 um, that that does kind of create a, a feeling that, that, these, that this turmoil is everywhere all the time, constantly. And you see this even today, uh, unfortunately, with some of the recent protests. So if you... Um, 
you go to your Facebook watch page, which, you know, Facebook's been really promoting watch. One of the things that you'll see are the, uh, are, is the, is the protest footage. But one of the interesting dynamics that's happening there is wherever there's a protest, anywhere, even if it's like six people yelling on a corner, there is a roughly or an RT or a redfish feed there. So Russia state media is taking this footage and it is constantly pushing it out on the watch tab uh, in a way that even American media isn't. They're not covering the tiny, minute, six guys on the corner kind of protests. Um, but if you are following these channels, what you see in your feed is, again, push notification, protest somewhere, go in and watch it. And so it really creates this feeling that, you know, that the world is burning. And and this is where, you know, for those of us who study this stuff, the challenge is, you know, there's real problems, there's real content, there is there are real atrocities that you want people to be aware of. And then at the same time, there are actors that have an ulterior motive that have become the sort of dominant channel for pushing this stuff out. And so again, it's that line between what's really happening and then the propaganda that's created around it. And for race, this is a particularly you know poignant moment for us as a country right now. I would say for gender, there is a lot less sophistication. Um, we have seen Russia run you know a fake feminist page, a couple of fake feminist pages at this point. They were never very good. They never quite got it. Uh, they never got very big. It was actually you know it was sort of funny. It was um, I'm, I'm trying to think of like a nice way to say this, but <laughs> the sort of twee Pinteresty, Instagrammy, like inspirational slogans with like made in prescript. Do you know what I'm talking about? That kind of uh, brush letter, um, live, love, laugh, or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that was the kind of stuff that they were putting out there. Um, and I thought yeah, it was really funny that, that their uh, their vision of, of uh, feminism is like this, you know, Instagrammy uh, live, love, laugh kind of stuff. So I think on the we haven't seen quite as much on the gender front, but again, anytime there's a tension to be exploited anytime there is, you know, if there's a um, revisiting of Roe versus Wade, for example, I mean, you'll see that kind of uh, that opportunity, take take advantage of that opportunity, take advantage of that tension, insert yourself into the conversation and make it seem a whole lot uh, worse than it actually and is. And when you say they haven't been very successful, what you mean is like their efforts to start kind of fake accounts or masquerading accounts just haven't gained traction the way that their efforts to kind of co-opt narratives and make them more extremist have on, on in terms of the race divides in our society. Yes, that's true. Exactly. Yeah. yeah the, the race divide was, I think, uh, by far the most successful angle that they had just in terms of the amount of engagement they were able to get around it. Um, the, size that they were able to grow those accounts to repeatedly actually it wasn't just the 2015 trolls you know there there are waves when they lose their accounts they begin to reconstitute new ones there's sort of always a process of you know developing your next persona uh, and the ones that are focused on race tend to be the ones that uh, attract the most attention and and actually get retweeted by the most prominent people too they're they're always trying to get real influencers meaning real blue check Americans, you know, people who have validated identities on social media and very large followings. One of the real goals is to get those people to amplify your message. Uh, and so the, the sort of man on the street troll is <laughs> looking to get retweeted by the president or a prominent uh, political figure or a prominent celebrity. Uh, and they did in fact make that happen on a number of occasions. Right. I mean, I, it seems like that's another really important thing for kind of our community to think about is how can we be conscious curators 
when right. we're amplifying messages um, because these really false narratives have, show up in so many different places. So when you're amplifying other voices, how can you make sure that they're legitimate ones and you're not somehow inadvertently spreading bad information or the work of bad actors? Right. Um, you know, we are just 40 something days away from an election. I think Facebook announced this week or said in an interview with the Financial Times that they may take some kind of preventive measures to clamp down on misinformation around election day. Um, what, do you, what do you make of this? What are they actually saying? What should we think about that? I mean, yeah, do you, so what do you see happening? Like, what are you going to be looking for on election day um, in terms so of we, disinformation? Um, we have a partnership at Stanford. It's called the Election Integrity Partnership. And it's us uh, University of Washington, Graphica, and a group called Digital Forensics Research Lab out of the Atlantic Council. And we're kind of the four kind of core members, um, but then there is a broader ring of partners in civil society and government, state and local governments as well, who are you know responsible for election integrity, voting, uh, voting related integrity issues. And we've chosen to focus very narrowly on voter related, um, sorry, voting and voter related narratives. So things that would constitute some sort of voter suppression, uh, myths and misleading information about mail-in ballots, uh, wild disinformation claims related to a voting machine and XYZ got hacked kind of thing. And so what we're looking to do is be able to see these narratives as they emerge. So we have kind of early detection tools that we've all prioritized kind of uh, building. Um, and we use human analysts, you know, people on our team <laughs> who look at those things as they come in and kind of triage them and decide, is this a narrative that appears to be growing? You don't want to spend all of your time, you know, one piece of disinformation in some random Facebook group somewhere is not an issue, right? It's sort of like a tree falling in the woods. People are wrong online. There's misleading information online. So what you really want to be doing is looking at what is the stuff that is actually gaining traction or has the potential uh, to be influential and misleading to people. And then how do we think about that uh, one of the things, as, I, as we were talking about before, how can the platforms react earlier? One of the things that we can do is we can surface things and say, hey, this appears to be hopping from Twitter to Facebook. Maybe Twitter and Facebook need to take a look at what's going on here. Uh, so the platforms cooperate with each other. At this point, we also have this relationship whereby they can cooperate with outside researchers as well. And so again, we have this multi-stakeholder approach to looking at and, and triaging these narratives. More broadly than that, I think it's going to be a highly divisive campaign. I mean, we're already seeing wild edited videos kind of going viral constantly. Uh, again, the challenge is really the platforms um, do not seem to be particularly adept yet at saying this is going viral. Let's make a decision now or this is going viral. Let's reduce the virality. Let's reduce the number of people who are seeing the shares uh, while our fact checkers have an opportunity to come in and and provide a fact check so that as the video continues to be shared, the truth, the, the accurate fact is, is presented alongside it. Or if they are going to take something down, having a really clear policy line that's articulated to the public that they can point to when they do the takedown so that it doesn't seem like an ad hoc act of censorship, uh, but that allows them to intercede to prevent something that is deeply harmful from spreading. So that's kind of where we are. You know, we're, we're treating this as a um, kind of a, you know, all hands on deck. I think some of our biggest concerns really are that the integrity of the outcome 
will be called into question by half the country, right? Regardless of who wins, that 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 the that the American public will spend the next forty some odd days hearing uh, that the election is illegitimate because of in, you know insert various you know myths and misinformation reasons, uh, whichever they kind of vary depending on which side of the aisle you're on. Um, we want to ensure that people have confidence in the outcome. And so that's what we're really working to uh, to try to ensure alongside our various partners. I want to get a couple of questions in from um, all of the members of our network here. Um, Katie Janowiak is asking, are there any success stories that we can point to in terms of combating the erosion of trust? Huh. Um, that's a great question. I think... I don't have a positive one for you off the top of my head as much as that makes me feel very negative right now. Um, I think it, you know, well, I mean, Americans are wearing masks, you know, half of us at least, <laughs> um, more than half. So I think there's a, you know, some of those narratives related to coronavirus, staying inside, sheltering in place uh, did reach the target audience and, um, you know, people did still trust that in those institutional authorities to an extent. I think we're just at kind of historic record lows right now with so many different institutions, with the media, with government, with, uh, you know, the sort of uh, health and, and other, you know, government departments. I, I think that the real challenge is how do we restore that trust offline um, to, mm -hmm. you know, so the social media part is... Uh, it exacerbates it, but it's also kind of a reflection of the underlying problem. Right, of, of just an erosion in all, of trust in all institutions. Um, right. But what about, okay, you mentioned QAnon a little while ago, and I think lots of people are kind of baffled, bewildered, um, interested. Um, Tanya Barrientos at um, uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, was asking, is QAnon as widespread and influential as, you know, portrayed through kind of mainstream and traditional media? What, what's your take on QAnon? Well, it's interesting. So QAnon started a couple of years back and it was originally, you know, it was kind of almost an outgrowth of uh, the people who followed Pizzagate. So it started very much in the kind of conspiracy theorist community. Um, gradually, through confluence of factors, uh, it, it began to... Um, obtain some popularity among what we would consider like less traditionally conspiratorial communities. And you see people beginning to go outside with kind of Q shirts on going to President Trump's rallies and things. So it gradually expanded into more traditional communities. And um, and unfortunately, recently with the Save the Children angle, the, this, you know, the core narrative around QAnon is that, um, that President Trump is trying to disrupt pedophilia and trafficking rings. Uh, the vast secret cabal, of course, mostly Democrats who are committing these atrocities and the president is secretly um, saving the world. Is, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go into the specifics. Um, but what has happened at this point is that when people see Save the Children and see content related to trafficking, um, there are many people, many moms, myself included, who think this is a, you know, this is a very real problem in society that people need to you know, be aware of. Uh, the problem is the real institutional, the real authorities that are doing this work, uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and others, are not wild conspiracy theorists. They're just doing good work. But this hashtag is kind of uh, commandeering attention away from the real work and turning it to this like wild conspiratorial type 
of, uh, you know, narrative around trafficking that actually just isn't true. It's just rooted in reality. But because the hashtag is appealing, you do see people saying, oh, well, you know, I want to save the children too. So I'm going to forward this content along. And so that's the dynamic by which, you know, people are inadvertently amplifying and sharing this content that kind of ties back is rooted in this deeply conspiratorial, like wild, um, you know, crazy narrative. They don't realize it. They don't understand the provenance of it. And so they just see this meme come across their screen and they want to share it. And so that kind of continues to, uh, then when this hashtag goes wildly viral, the theory among the, the kind of Q promoters is that people will click in, will go and see, and then we'll find out the truth by tracing it back to the, the Q content. So that's the dynamic that's happening today. So the numbers are growing. Um, when we talk about influence, it's very hard for people who study social media to have concrete assessments of impact. And what that means is we can see engagement numbers. I can tell you how fast groups are growing. I can tell you how content spreads. I can tell you how many likes and shares and what those cascades look like. I can tell you what communities it's in. But what I can't tell you is, did this change somebody's mind? Did this turn them into an activist for the cause? Did this drive them to go find out more about Q? Or did they just share that one meme? And that was that. this is, again, our problem with the Russia assessment, too. I can tell you 127 million engagements on Russia content related to the election. I can't tell you how many of those people, it really kind of changed their mind about a candidate or made them take an action or not take an action uh, kind of predicated on what they saw. And so that's the challenge that we have as, as social science researchers who study narratives on the internet is then there's a sort of second order thing that has to happen where so other types of social science researchers running survey experiments are actually asking people, did you see this? How did you engage with it? How did you feel about it? To do a, a better job of understanding uh, whether it influenced and how it impacted. And it seems to me that's one of the biggest challenges is it's we're really trying to understand how online content and information consumption then leads to certain offline behaviors. And you need a different kind of research that has a slightly longer time horizon. And for a lot of people in our normal way of thinking about decision-making and policy-making, that's what you need before you can take an action. Um, and yet, while we're taking the time to understand those things, these narratives are really flying and, and you know, growing in a metastatic way. So um, that's a huge challenge. A couple of folks are asking, and I think, you know, it's really a couple of questions about the ethics of online engagement, because some of the tactics that we talk about um, that are being co-opted by, uh, you know, malign actors are tactics that, you know, people in our comms for good community want to use. We want to have more people engage with our content. And um, so how, how do you think about kind of the ethics of what we're doing um, on the web. I mean, one one way the person has asked it was, um, um, is it okay to brainwash people into, say, a climate-friendly <laughs> lifestyle? You know, what are the new ethics here? So, what are your thoughts about that? Man, I wish I wish I had an answer to that one. Um, that's that's really. I mean, that's that's one of the key challenges I think that that we're all struggling with right now. Right? That you you know, in the very early days of our evolution on thinking about the stuff, the policy stuff. So back when I was working on the ISIS uh, issue in 2015, or, or the anti-vaxxers for that matter, the real belief, the sincerely held belief, was that freedom of expression was kind of 
the highest good, right? And if you took down ISIS, what would you have to take down next? You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. If U.S. government asks a platform to take down these accounts, uh, what is China going to ask a platform to take down, right? So there are a lot of these, um, you know, there's a lot of this uh, debate that was happening in 2015. We kind of moved past that to a reevaluation of the definition of harms. But I think that the ethics of, uh, you know, you don't want to be in a position where it's like, well, we're going to accept this manipulative thing if we believe that the end justifies the means or that there's a, uh, a net good um, that, that maybe comes out of it. I think the challenge that we face right now, particularly in election 2020, uh, is that there were bright lines that were established around what was going to come down when we were looking at foreign actors, right? So there's a uh, concept called coordinated and authentic behavior. And what we look at when we assess an operation is we're looking at the content. And that doesn't mean the narrative. You know, we're not saying like, well, this narrative is true and that narrative is false. It's more an understanding of um, are there, is the content coming from um, websites that just sprung up yesterday? Is the, you know, is there some provenance to the content that's dubious? Uh, is the content, you know, inflammatory or harmful in some way is part of it, but it's not really the the core thing. Then we're looking at the voice. So who is putting these these narratives out into the world? Are the accounts authentic? Do they exist? Uh, or is it like a, you know, domestically speaking or corporate speak, an astroturf campaign or, or a troll campaign where these people who are saying this thing don't really exist? Um, and then we look at the dissemination pattern. Is there something that looks manipulative about how it's being put out? Does it look like it's being deliberately put out with an intent to try to game a trending or recommendation algorithm? Uh, does it look like there's mass coordination across a ring of 25 pages that don't disclose they're all owned by the same person to kind of amplify content and get more eyes on it, uh, which is sort of a spam tactic, but also something that we see network activism doing, right? And, and this is the real problem. The question becomes, where is that bright line when the accounts are authentic and when the content is real and legitimate and, you know, is not a sort of fly-by-night spam operation? Uh, and then the question becomes, okay, so when we look at the dissemination patterns, what do we think is an okay, acceptable form of coordination? Is um, a whole lot, you know, if you want to make something trend and you get 60 of your closest friends to, you know, to all participate in the process and it trends, that's great. If you get 60 of your closest friends and their 500 bot accounts, that's not so okay, right? So we're, we're trying to figure out um, where those lines are. In, in coordinated activism versus uh, versus manipulation. And that is uh, unfortunately kind of like the sort of front line of the uh, the policy debate today. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're, we're getting close to um, the end of our session here. I wonder if you can just like look around the corner and help us think about um, you know, I feel like even though it's it's been a few, I mean, social media has actually not been as prevalent in our life. It's a really recent phenomenon in the way we think about how we consume information, but it has so fundamentally changed the way people get, share, connect with each other, and and for a lot of good things. But what are your hopes um, for how we grapple with the challenge of the false narratives? I mean, is the genie just out of the bottle? Or are there more things that we should be looking to try to think about? We in this community, not just as communications leaders, but also as you know, voters, citizens, you know, parents, neighbors. Like, how, how do we have agency here in thinking about what comes next? 
and how to make sure that it's a healthy information ecosystem. I mean, I think some of it is education. Per your point, it's only really been um, maybe six years or so of this current iteration of the information environment. Propaganda is not new. It's it's hundreds of years old. It you know started during the uh, Protestant Reformation, right? It was a Catholic church. The, the, the word actually comes from a committee for the propagation of the faith, the sort of um, counter Protestant narrative that, you know, so this is a very old phenomenon. Um, and propaganda really evolves to fit the information environment of the day. So it looked different when it was the printing press versus when it was the radio, the television, and now the internet. Uh, and then the social internet, which I think of as actually sort of distinct from the blogosphere era of the internet for a couple of reasons. Um, so as that iter- you know, as that, that evolution has happened, I think what really is the major, major change is that we are all active participants now. And that is a thing that wasn't true in the other information environments, right? So in the era of radio or television, you could listen, you could hand the article off to your friends, but you weren't an active part of that viral dissemination loop. And so this is where I think we all do have a responsibility to think about, you know, what are we sharing? Particularly if you are a blue check account with a lot of followers, you have a responsibility. And I think people need to internalize that. I think that this is a thing that, you know, a lot of people say, well, oh, I just put it out there. I was just asking questions. No, that's not how this works anymore. Uh, you are, in fact, actively participating in your role. You know, you've, you've worked hard to develop a reputation as a thought leader, whether that's through your corporate channel or your personal channel. Uh, at this point, what you put out there has impact and it furthers a narrative, it pushes a narrative along. And so taking the time to really make sure, like, is this factually accurate before I share it? Is this, um, you know, am I sharing this because I feel a sense of outrage to kind of push it along? Because oftentimes that's done very deliberately. You know, you talk to people and they're like, well, I didn't read the article, but the headline said, you know. <laughs> and so making sure that people are kind of doing that check and understanding what they're sharing because they are furthering the, the propagation of a narrative when they share, when they engage, when they comment. Uh, and that, I think, is something where we all bear some individual responsibility in addition to, you know, the tech platforms have a whole lot to do with regard to fixing curation and recommendations and having a, you know, an understanding of harm and how content should be moderated in response. Uh, but as far as things where we have agency, I, w- I would argue that it's really understanding the, the fact that our voices carry weight, um, that what we say and do matters and influences uh, what the people around us see. So we do need to, to take some responsibility for that. That's great, because I think it really speaks back to that question about ethics. It's that we all are participants in this system. So we have a responsibility to make it healthier by um, curating what we're sharing and holding it to a high standard. Um, let me ask you um, about the role of the government, just to close us out here, um, which is we've talked about technology. I think many of us have seen our government um, not really figure out how to engage on this particular issue. And in fact, it's part of an international regime, right? Like some of the the most impactful policies that are affecting the way technology companies um, deal with false information is coming from the EU. So how do you think about this? What is the role of government? You have testified um, in Congress, you have talked to um, elected officials about this. What's your take? Well, I think one of the challenges right now for us in the U.S. is the government is so um, hyper-partisan, right? The divide is so strong. So even if, interestingly, you'll see um, you'll see commentary that says like, oh, both Democrats and Republicans want to regulate tech. Yes, that's true. What they want is the complete opposite, though, right? So you have, uh, particularly on the, let's use content moderation as the example, 
Um, there are a lot of people in the Democratic community, you know, Democrat and, and left, uh, who believe that platforms aren't moderating enough, that they're letting too much hate speech stand, that they're negatively impacting marginalized communities, um, that they are allowing uh, harassment to kind of, you know, go unchecked and they want to see more moderation. And then you have on the right, uh, people who are more on the free speech kind of absolutism side who believe that as long as they're not threatening to kill somebody, <laughs> the uh, you know that, that the definition of a harm should be quite limited and perhaps even limited to how we think about it in terms of real world speech. There are different dynamics to online speech that, that make it a little bit distinct, but they believe that, that it should ultimately kind of fall under the same regulatory, um, you know, kind of constitutional protection framework as, uh, as, as offline speech. So the idea that, you know, when, when people think about how tech platforms should moderate, yes, both Ted Cruz and Elizabeth Warren are saying tech platforms need to be regulated, but ultimately the um, the specifics of that, there's some disagreement about. So the question becomes, can you come up with just some sort of oversight body that kind of like adjudicates some of these issues or looks to see where tech is uh, having perhaps demonstrable unintentional harms or, you know, kind of like the pollution model. Is it is it doing something that is negatively impactful on society? Uh, without the government weighing in on content moderation specifics, you know, recognizing that these are private platforms. So this is the this is the real challenge that we face. Um, in Europe, they've chosen to focus very much on the privacy angle. And so they've kind of instituted a series of uh, consumer protections related to privacy. There are trade-offs with any of these regulatory methodologies. So interestingly, with privacy, uh, you know, with, with privacy constraints in Europe, that negatively impacts security researchers. So people right. who are investigating disinformation campaigns in Europe don't have quite the same visibility as some of us do uh, in campaigns that are localized in the U.S. Or, you know. And so there's a, um, you know, anytime you make a regulatory decision, you have to be considering what the, uh, what the trade-off is going to be. And I think right now, the conversation on regulation is, as far as I can tell, is largely halted ahead of, uh, ahead of the November election and won't really... Uh, be a, a source of, uh, you know, won't develop in any meaningful way until January. We thought perhaps it was going to be a major topic of conversation in this election, particularly given the president's executive orders and his concerns about, uh, you know, perceived anti-conservative bias. Um, but now instead we have coronavirus and real world protests. So that is, uh, you know, I feel like tech regulations kind of fallen by the wayside as far as the political well, I think what is so striking and what I think we have all learned from what you've shared is actually that the infrastructure of these technology platforms, the way they privilege certain kinds of content that can go viral actually ends up having such huge implications for how we as a society grapple with all of those issues, whether it's choices about how to engage with the election or public health information around COVID-19 the racial protests and how we they are even perceived. Um, um, thank you so much. I mean, you've really shared so much with us about how to understand what is really a brave new world um, of how narratives flow. Um, and for all of us who take a huge responsibility in, um, I think, trying to lift up the best information, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, and, and for us to remember that we have um, power and responsibility and ability to be truth tellers um, and to to maybe push that in a better direction and that the stakes are really, really high. So um, on behalf of everyone from ComNet, Renee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.